What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Right on Hollywood with Christian Toto, part of the Just the News Podcast Network. Sick of media bias infecting film reviews? Furious that too many stars insult your views? Right on Hollywood has your back. Christian is an award-winning journalist, movie critic, and founder of HollywoodinToto.com, the right take on entertainment. Now here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to Right on Hollywood, a proud member of the Just the News Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by The Matrix Resurrections. If two lousy sequels back-to-back didn't chase you away, have we got a film for you. This week we're talking with Sasha Stone. She's a veteran film journalist whose latest project is Voir, and it comes from none other than director David Fincher. I bet that got your attention. It did the trick for me. We'll also talk to the mind behind a new satirical novel that tackles cancel culture, identity politics, and more. I had a great time talking to A.I. Fabler. He doesn't live in America, but boy, does he get the cultural crisis that's going on in our shores. First up, though, I wanted to share some behind-the-scenes information about awards season. Now, I don't get to vote for the Oscars. I'm guessing I never will. Just not in that crowd. But I do get to weigh in on the Critics' Choice Association Awards. That means this time of year, late November, early December, I'm just flooded with movie screeners, digital links, and other ways I can see the latest and greatest films. Why? Well, they want me to see all these award-winning films so I can vote on them. At least the movies hope they're award-winning films. I'll have to wait and see. I've got a stack of DVDs in front of me right now, looking at No Time to Die, The French Dispatch, House of Gucci, and a whole bunch more. But that's not all I get this time of year. December also means I get a lot of stuff in the mail. T-shirts, screenplays, coffee mugs, lyric sheets, posters... You name it, chances are I'll be opening up a box with it inside in the next few days. I know this is audio, but if you could see me right now, you'd see my glowing skin from my shimmering sugar scrub, courtesy of the Aretha Franklin biopic, Respect. Thank you, Aretha. So why all the free stuff? Well, movie studios will do whatever it takes to grab your attention and hopefully watch their award-winning films, right? That's the whole point. That's like, I think Amazon and Netflix, Netflix in particular, are the most aggressive players here. Now, they are new to the scene. They are new studios. They have to compete with Paramount and Warner Brothers and Sony, so I kind of get it. But boy, are they aggressive. 
The last few days, I think Netflix has sent me a flask and shot glasses, a leather-bound screenplay for The uh, Harder They Fall, one of their new original films, and some other stuff I just forgot. Now, of course, none of this is going to change my mind when it's voting for the beer's best movies. It's not the way I work. I don't think anyone works like the way. But it's kind of hard to deny that when you get all the stuff floating into your house, when you've got the stuff kind of unwrapped on your kitchen counter, sometimes these movies are a little bit top of mind. It just can't help but be that way. Or at least until that shimmering sugar scrub wears off. It's also clear that Netflix is spending so much money on all this free stuff. And the shipping costs alone are just substantial. Some of these boxes are huge and heavy. These books are not cheap. They are hard to make. They're beautifully bound often and uh, glossy, kind of thing you'd want on your coffee table. But again, if you've ever mailed anything, you know the heavier the product, the more you're going to pay. And Netflix is paying through the nose right now. And that is just a small glimpse into Hollywood's annual awards season. It's why the same select stars give dozens and dozens of interviews this time of year. They just can't stop talking. And it's campaigning, pure and simple. And if that feels like a political candidate kissing babies, pressing the flesh, that's no accident. Kind of two variations of the very same thing. The more I hang around the movie game, I have to say, the more I realize that excellence and artistic merit is far less important than, what did Charlie Sheen say? Winning. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Right on Hollywood. What's the dial? Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This week's Toto Take is Coming Home in the Dark. This one is about a family of four that goes on vacation and they meet in a pair of crooks right away. They barely unpack their stuff before this encounter happens and things go south pretty quickly. Shots are fired. Blood is shed. There's something more to the violence than meets the eye initially. I'd say right away, coming home in the dark is not for the squeamish. It's not a gore fest. It's not a ton of blood. But boy, it is nasty at times and shocking. And the tension, it's relentless. It's also bold and pretty well acted for this kind of movie. I didn't know what was coming next. I was really on the edge of my seat in the proverbial sense, sure. But I like movies that kind of catch me off guard and aren't predictable. It's increasingly rare these days. And this one definitely fits that category. If you're looking for something bold and bracing, and you're not afraid to kind of uh, maybe look away a time or two, Coming Home in the Dark is available right now on Netflix. The times we live in, I mean, it's just a perfect gift for any kind of satirist to have a field day. And of course, late night TV mostly overlooks that. Saturday Night Live does the same. Very few comics are stepping up to the plate and taking on what's going on in society right now. Well, author A.I. Fabler did just that. His new book is called Agenda 2060, The Future As It Happens. And yes, it feels exactly like it was ripped from today's woke headlines. Identity politics run amok. A government squashing the little guy. Cancel culture unbound. Yuck. It's all there. I recently spoke with the author about the book and his plan not to alienate the left 
or the right while he was writing it. It's no small task. Well, let's just see what you think of Agenda 2060 and the mind behind it. Artie, welcome to the show. For people who are unfamiliar with you and your work, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background and and the specifics behind this particular novel? Uh, I read a teaser on it on the Amazon page, but I think it's it's interesting enough that I wanted you to kind of really dig into it deeper. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> well, apart from three years in New York, which I don't think counts as uh, making me knowledgeable about the United States and what's <laughs> happening there politically, I've spent most of my working life in Europe or in uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific, starting as a journalist and, uh, and moving on up through uh, public relations, uh, finance journalism, and then into the corporate world. But all the time I've been uh, writing, certainly for the last 30 years, and uh, in particular straight into, um, into script writing, and also as a, as a novelist. Now, the, the genesis of this book um, lies in a, a, a session that I had back in 2017, which of course was beginning of the Trump era. And I was at a artist retreat, also an, an academics retreat in Northern Italy in Tuscany, which sounds terrible. <laughs> um, and, there were some uh, California college academics there, and I really struggled to have conversations with them because every time I commented on any of the issues that I thought were um, interesting, it appeared that I'd thrown a hand grenade into the middle of the table and, and they either couldn't respond, um, casting uh, anxious looks at each other, or else they became apoplectic about what I thought were very innocent comments and <clears throat> it was really the first example that I'd had of just how far um, discussion and conversation generally has polarized in the US to the extent that people uh, are really afraid of speaking outside of their tribal network. Um, the way I solved it was I told them that I was I was working on a, on the backstory for a script which is a comedy about two aging uh, Hollywood filmmakers who were poring over the entrails of their life while on holiday in Spain. And the title of the work was uh, Testosterona <laughs> and, the, and the Meaning of Life. <laughs> and, and essentially, um, it was, it was a, a, a sad but comic um, back look at, uh, at their lives. And the wife of one of these academics looked absolutely appalled. And she said, they can't possibly be want wanting to make films like that nowadays. I said, why not? And she said, well, first of all, I presume that it's about two men and that those men are white men. And she said, where are the women in this story? And I said, well, um, some of them are, are their previous mistresses and some of them are are their wives, but they're very present in the story. And she said, well, I wouldn't want to see it. Now, she may have said something to the, to the effect that, that it was not only uh, ageist and sexist, that it might have been racist as well, because... <laughs> uh, you got the trifecta. The two, the two protagonists were, 
were Jewish. Anyway, so I went away overnight. I, was, I wrote a, uh, a skit about one of the subjects, which was clearly very dear to their heart, um, which was the issue of uh, gender politics, gender identity, and victimhood. And in the skit, I projected a, 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 a future in which um, government allowed for universal basic income to be awarded basis based on the level of your victimhood. And this created a tremendous competition amongst everyone to be the biggest victim. And I, I wrote it as broadly as I possibly could. In fact, using the comedy of the absurd to the, to the absolute extreme so that they wouldn't take it seriously. <laughs> well, when I read it to them the following night, they absolutely loved it. Oh, okay. And, I, <laughs> and it made me realize then what Peter Euston offered always been saying that comedy is simply a funny way of being serious. <laughs> so that's how it started. That's amazing. You know, I think one of the tricky parts of writing satire today is that what is outrageous and nonsensical uh, this week could be the norm in, in a few years, if not a few months. It, does that, as a satirist, does that cross your mind? Does that make it trickier for you? Or are you just going to have to kind of push that aside and say, I have to go with it, go with whatever I think it is, and, and hope reality does, doesn't catch up with abandon. Well, that is a real problem. Um, you, you simply can't believe how absurd people are capable of being. But the thing that that is in the back of my mind all the time is, it's a saying of Voltaire, which makes me sound very erudite to quote it, but <laughs> it's actually one that you probably know well anyway. But those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And I think that uh, when you look at cancel culture, that's pretty much where it is uh, taking us currently. Um, you know, I was, I was uh, reading about the, uh, the young brats who have made themselves world famous, or they haven't made themselves, but they have become world famous and very rich as a result of the parts that they got to play in the um, Harry Potter series. Yes. And how they have excluded J.K. Rowling from the celebrations. And I thought, <laughs> you know, th this, is, this is giving birth to an, a new phrase, which is that you're J.K.'d. <laughs> as in, you're, you're not invited to the thing that you created. It would be like... It would be like uh, the uh, the actors in one of the great greatest films that I that I recall, which is Wag the Dog, and <clears throat> at their celebration, they banned David Mamet from coming. Hello, <laughs> he wrote it. <laughs> so I this see. is the sort of thing that's happening, and and for for people in the middle, neither in the woke or the anti woke tribe. It's extremely baffling, but it's actually causing them to hold their tongue because they're not, they're not sure what to say. Yeah. You know, I, I think a, a quick glance at what your book is about would say, oh, gosh, it's, it's catnip for conservatives because they've been the, the most agitated against cancel culture and some of the, some of the platforms and some of the sort of philosophies you're, you're hitting on here. But you mentioned that that skit really kind of went well with the people who were kind of its target. And I know you, you've written this in a way that you're trying to not exclude anyone. You want everyone to kind of enjoy the satire. 
that sounds much easier said than done. Can you talk about from a creative process how you attempted that? Because I, I would think that's a really tricky tight rope to walk. It is, except for one thing, and that is that when I decided to turn this into a book-length uh, treatise, there were two things that I had in mind. First of all, I was determined not to write a polemic because the world is full of them. I mean, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you go onto uh, Amazon and you look for political satire um, or even remove the word satire, uh, you'll see how many people who, who are... Uh, extremely well-informed and very erudite uh, are writing about this subject. And generally speaking, you only read that which is confirming your own prejudices, mm -hmm. which doesn't really advance anything very much. And after a while, it's not terribly entertaining either. So I said, I must not make this a polemic. And so I wrote down uh, 12 articles, that is to say, ideals, by which uh, a world government, and let's assume that it's a world government in 40 years time, because we seem to be heading that way, um, a world government would seek to di di direct uh, society to behave. And they were, they're the hot button topics that, that we have floating around today. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote them all down, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're designed to avoid uh, prejudice and to support uh, victims and to ensure that the ecology of the planet is protected and that global warming, <clears throat> if it is accelerating as a result of anthropogenic behavior, that, that, that we deal to that. Um, all of the things that you can imagine and hate speech. And I wrote them all down and I thought, you know, <clears throat> I can't think of anybody who doesn't generally agree with the thrust of these mm -hmm. ideals. The problem is how they are implemented uh, once people get hold of them and distort them for their own ends. And that's where the absurdity um, got triggered because it's very easy to see how you can take them to, um, to, to lengths which border on insanity. And I made sure that I really um, screwed that up, um, by which I mean screwed it, <laughs> screwed it tightly towards the, the the ultimate level of absurdity. And so I have people who, and you can imagine in the publishing industry, which is full of um, uh, those who have graduated from academia with extraordinarily um, woke view of the world, 78% of the editorial staff and publishing are women, 75% of general and literary fiction sold today is written by, by women um, who are coming out of uh, modern literature courses in many, in many cases. And so I held my breath when, uh, when the manuscript was passed in front of many of them. <laughs> and I, was, I, was, I was amazed at how they, they knew that I wasn't uh, uh, being antagonistic towards them. I was simply having fun and making fun of absurdity. And of course, none of them think that they're being absurd. Although when you read something like I read this morning, and I hope this doesn't tread on anybody's toes over there, but <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that a person at Penn State, a swimmer, 
who had been a, a successful uh, swimmer over the last few years, um, has now begun breaking swimming records nonstop, having become a trans woman. Yeah, that's a, a massive story here and a massive debate as well. Um, I, 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 we don't have the time to get into that, but it is intriguing. When you started this book, you mentioned the inspiration, you mentioned your goals. You were able to kind of do it in a way that, that didn't sort of anger certain communities. All these are, are laudable. I'm kind of curious, did you emerge from the writing process more pessimistic about the future or did this kind of maybe put a bounce in your step and you kind of felt like there, there's hope for Western culture? I, it's kind of a broad question, but I just, any, any kind of response? Or? Well, I'm relatively hopeful. Um, and the reason for that is that, that I've lived through um, periods when, uh, when young people and particularly college students have been uh, aggressively at odds with uh, other members uh, of their society. I mean, I remember Kent State University. I remember the Vietnamese riots. I even go back as a, as a, as a youngster to the 1968 um, uh, Paris and, uh, and German uh, uprisings, and they were pretty vicious. And of course, they did come out of uh, a branch of postmodernism, which was essentially uh, uh, Marxism, uh, or uh, at least the, the Trotskyite movements. And, <clears throat> and we survived them. And uh, I think that uh, we will survive this moment uh, as well. In fact, uh, it's ironic that the country that gives most hope that, that this stage will pass is France, because that was the birthplace, really, of, um, of postmodernism. Um, and there was, uh, there was a time, or certainly since the period of de Gaulle, um, most of the leading politicians in France could be referred to as ex-Trotskyites. Mm -hmm. and those who weren't ex-Trotskyites were actually Trotskyites. Um, but now it's very much uh, center-right in France. Interesting. Sometimes history has a sense of humor, and, and obviously your book does too. The name of the book is Agenda 2060, The Future As It Happens. Artie, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, any, anyone who could write a satire that doesn't alienate a specific group has done something wonderful and, and rare. So uh, we appreciate that and understand that there may be more installments of this particular saga coming soon. Is that something you can confirm? There is. this part two, which is Agenda 2060, The View from Space. And I think Elon Musk <laughs> will enjoy it. All right. Artie, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope everyone checks out your book. Thank you, Christian. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This podcast may lean to the right. The word right is in the title. But we never shut out artistic voices who agree to disagree with us. We're not that way. And that's why Sasha Stone is such a perfect guest for the show. 
She's the founder of awardsdaily.com, a long-running website that catalogs the awards season, but also films year-round as well. And she's not a big fan of virtue signaling. Politically speaking, she leans to the left, but she absolutely loathes the woke culture, the cancel culture that's going on right now, and anyone who's trying to silence other voices besides her. She's paid a price for that, for defending free speech. It's kind of sad to say, but it's true. But in between, she found time to narrate one of six episodes of a really cool new show. It's on Netflix, and it's called Voir, V-O-I-R. And it's a passion project from the great director, David Fincher. That's amazing. Turns out, Sasha knows David Fincher and has known him for years. We'll find out more about that in a minute. Now, if you love movies, Voir will help explain why, which is kind of cool. Or if you ever wonder why movies culturally matter, why they're significant in our lives, this series really spells it out for you. Now, Sasha shares a lot more about the creation of the show, why it took forever to get here, and also what her current status is with her fellow film critics. I hope you'll check out the Netflix series right after our chat with Sasha Stone. Sasha, this project really kind of caught me off guard. It, it, it's really aimed at movie lovers. It's sophisticated. It's deeply personal. But I'm kind of curious how you got involved with it because it's, I, I, we mentioned off air that I actually know a couple of people who were the, the sort of the narrators of this particular special. But how did you kind of get involved with the whole project and did it take a while? I know sometimes back in Hollywood, things can take a while to kind of percolate. Hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I, I have been, um, uh, not friends with David Fincher. I wouldn't call us friend. Well, I mean, we're friends, but we're, it's not like we have each other's text numbers or anything, but, um, but because I cover film and, and, you know, he's one of my favorite directors, I've spent a lot of time writing about him. And at some point, 10 years ago or so, we, we started to have coffee meetings where we would just talk about movies. You know, we talked for hours, like three hours, couple times a year maybe and you know he has other people that he meets with that he talks about that and you know some of the things that he wanted to address with this series came up you know during that time and and as hollywood's begun to change as film criticism has begun to change um you know he feels like and and all of us agree that there's just something being lost in translation mm -hmm. here there's some there's some missing piece that that we're not quite getting to uh and so he thought you know maybe we should try to write something or you know create something that that is a reminder of how much value cinema has in our lives you know and how much we all love it and why do we love it you know and that was about that was in like 2018 we started doing that and then you know we assembled a group of people and you know looked at the various pitches that they had and the ideas that they had. And, you know, we kind of bandied those about. Then he brought on this guy named David Pryor, who's a director who worked with us. And, you know, we got a, you know, for mine, we got a whole film crew and shot it and, and then, you know, worked on it in editing. And so it's been a couple of years in, in progress. And then we, we brought on Walter Chaw, who, you know, um, later to do his, cause we needed another episode to fill up the, the ones that we had. Mm -hmm somebody that was planning on doing it had dropped out. And so we needed another one and, you know, to fill it out and make it a season one. I honestly never knew it would actually go on <laughs> air. Like it, it was taking so long that I thought this thing's never going to go, but it was fine. It was fun to do. And, and how cool I get to work with David Fincher. Like that's a lifelong dream. And, um, 
But here it is. It's coming out December 6th. Yeah. Who knew? So it's funny. Two things as you were talking came to my mind. One is there really is a sense of melancholy to this project. And I, and I, I don't, I don't know if that was meant directly, but it kind of does tease about sort of the changing way we look at films and how mm. maybe even a younger generation doesn't sort of have that connection, that, that affinity, that sort of cultural tug. But also, you know, it's hard to replicate what you do in a series in a much shorter venue. But man, if I'm the Oscar producers, you absolutely mm. want to capture the flavor of war in, in what they do. Because that is the pinnacle, that is the essence of what they should have on every Oscar night performance. They should capture the spirit, the love, the passion, the the shared sense of values that movies bring to us, which the series does so well. And I think they do a terrible job at the Oscars. I, I just, oh God, I just, it, it's I it's sad that they that's a state of affairs. I, I want to talk a little bit about Jaws. There are very few films that I throw the word perfect around about. Mm. I, I think Alien, I think Raiders Lost Ark, and this is my pop culture, sort of like my kid roots, but Jaws falls squarely in the perfect category. Was that sort of the no-brainer choice for you in your segment? Or were there other films that you thought maybe would, would be comparable I mean, as far as their impact? First of all, you and I obviously, you know, same wheelhouse, same generation, it seems like. And, um, you know, if you grew up at that time, you remember those movies. They meant a lot. They were blockbusters. Everybody went to see them. And that was the thing about Jaws is everybody went to see Jaws, like everybody. It wasn't just aimed at one group, you know? Like now everything's sort of fractured off into these niches and it's not a collective experience anymore, which is partly why we're all so divided because we don't really have anything to bring us all together. Everyone's been pushed to one side or the other. Great point. Um, But I had, I had like 10 pitches or something that I gave them, gave him. And, you know, we ended up with Jaws because it's David Fincher's one of his top five or, you know, not favorite, but he considers Mm. it to be one of the greatest five films of all time and and the director David Pryor knows even more about Jaws than I do and so it was the perfect fit. Now talk a little bit about you know there's been so much said about Jaws uh, you know the, the the rubber shark that managed to still work and scare us the performances everything it's been examined to death but from your perspective what is so great or so memorable about the film that hasn't been discussed or that is that needs more attention? Um, I mean, I do think it's just that that idea that it was was so appealing across the board. I also think that at the time that it came out, you know, um, it was 1975. Everything was starting to change. It was another pendulum swing, but especially with movies, you know, Spielberg has an innate sense of pleasing audiences, and he's just got that down. And you know, when he made Duel, his first movie, I don't know if you've ever seen Duel, yeah, but yeah. Um, it's great, right? But um, I mean, you can see the front of that. You're like, God, this guy's a genius. <laughs> but uh, but he doesn't have the truck explode at the end. It just kind of, it just sort of drifts. It, it, you know, it goes off the edge of the cliff, but it doesn't explode. And so I think there was something about when Jaws, when the, when the shark explodes at the end, that audiences just didn't know that they wanted and, and it was such a satisfying thing. I think, I mean, when you think about it politically, you think about coming out of the seventies and you think about how down the mood was, not just with the Carter presidency, not just with Vietnam, um, but movies themselves were so vague and down and nobody really knew where they were going. They were kind of, and along comes this movie that just sort of recenters and focuses everything. And you feel what it feels like that a movie can actually do collectively to an audience. And it can give you that, 
satisfaction. I think that more than anything is what made people co keep coming back. To, I mean, it's great all the way through it, but I think just that satisfying ending. Um, obviously, Star Wars then did it uh, and blew up the Death Star at the end. And, you know, it just it just kind of gave you this this need for that last burst of, you know, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. Uh, so, you know, I think yeah. there, even in some great movies, the ending, I always say, it doesn't stick the landing. It doesn't quite right. capture it. And this is, I mean, just watching uh, Roy Scheider's face, the classic line, smile, you son of a, the explosion, mm -hmm. the fact that he's almost in the water and he's in that kind of diagonal perch, everything about it is perfect. W one of the things about this series that, that I found, and uh, again, the melancholy word comes to mind, although maybe it's just change, is the line between movies and TV and how it's blurred so dramatically. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, uh, a, a TV show or a TV movie, I could tell even as a little boy within a nanosecond, oh, this is a TV thing. Or this is a movie. They looked different, yeah. dramatically different. And the series really does a beautiful job of describing how storytelling was so different between the two uh, mediums. But now you've got these cable shows where you have as much money, if not more, poured into them. You've got all right. the A-list directors and talent flooding to make a, a small screen projects. Could this be a good thing ultimately? I mean, maybe the affection that you and I have for movies in the next generation will be a different medium, but also maybe similar. What, what's your take about sort of the, the line blurring and where, where we'll go from here? I think the, the good thing is, I mean, I was looking at my phone today and I was thinking, this is just amazing, like what my phone can do and what, what I can do when I sit down, the, the amount of anybody, like, you know, it, this isn't even a class thing, like the access to entertainment that any person can have. You don't have to be able to just afford to go sit in a movie, you know. You can just watch these things anywhere on YouTube or anything. Like the accessibility is insane. But I also think that the one thing that we lose with that and the unfortunate thing is that we are all becoming more isolated from each other, you know, and we're becoming more sort of in you know, we're, we're kind of in a way trapped by these, these devices and by this artificial intelligence that is keeping us, you know, kind of medicated on algorithms and shopping and buying stuff and in our own head and in our own pleasure zone, you know, and I don't know where that goes ultimately. I mean, the great thing about movies is it's, it was it used to kind of be like sporting events. Like it was a great thing to do, to be able to be among your fellow man, mm -hmm. you know, just that experience of being out and um, if we, you know, we do need something to replace that. I, I don't know that, you know, Twitter certainly can't be that thing. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously. one thing I've noticed but, in the uh, last few months is that horror movies have done really well despite the pandemic. And I think we're seeing a lot of categories suffer at the box office. But, you know, Candyman did fairly well. Halloween Kills, which I was not a fan of, did great box office. And I, I, I think maybe that does point to the, the need to be in a darkened theater with a whole bunch of strangers and to experience something again. And maybe Absolutely. horror is a better genre for that. You know, I mean, I could see yeah. the tender bar at home and I don't miss a, I don't miss anything exactly. by not seeing it right. in a theater. But if I see Halloween kills in theory, which assuming it was better and I was in a theater and a whole bunch of people were scared alongside me, that's a thing I can't replicate at home. So I don't know. For it's just, sure. And I, that definitely still lives among teenagers. Like my daughter, their, their age, they want to go, let's go do something fun yeah. on Friday night. Well, one of those fun things they still want to do is going to the movies. It's the adults that really don't go as much, but, yep. but that's why I think for Hollywood, they should really remember 
to not make their stuff totally partisan and political. They should think all the country, all the movie theaters, and not just the movie theaters in LA and New York, you know, because they've they've uh, burned through their credibility, I think, to a lot of a lot of people in this country. They just they don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be like given some sort of woke lecture on how they should be living their lives. And if Hollywood just steers clear of that and just remembers we're, we're giving somebody something to do on Friday night, they'll do a lot better. Yeah, I don't think they're going to hear that message, but I think you're right. I was trying to think of movies that impacted the culture in the last few years. And the one that I think jumps out at me, I don't know how many others can fit this category, is Joker. I mean, there was so much pre-buzz, the pre-release hype. Yeah. Then the movie came out and, and everyone went crazy. And I, I think, I mean, people had split opinions. I thought it was just, I get just talking about it, I want to watch it again. But I, mm-hmm. can you mention some other recent films that you think really grabbed a lot of people? I don't just mean the box office. I mean, you know, the superhero films make a zillion dollars. That's fine. But are there other movies that you can think in recent years that have had that cultural impact in a way that we used to have? I've been thinking about that a lot and I don't. And I think that's because we've become so divided. And and Joker, the great thing about Joker was it really did talk about your movie that reached across the aisle. Like it wasn't that it was necessarily a conservative movie, but it was certainly something people felt like they could watch. And one of the problems for Hollywood is that they have aimed their product at, at you know younger men and, and younger men are still their best and most reliable audiences they're still their best and most reliable ticket buyers and to appeal to them you have to make movies that they like that they're interested in you know um and so i think that if you ask for instance my daughter or someone in her generation they might say they might name some of the superhero movies i know um you know you hear a lot of people talk but that that definitely doesn't enter my realm of oscar like they just completely ignore it like it doesn't matter but i think there are some superhero movies that out in the general public, they might think like, um, what was that movie with that I thought was terrible, but um, <laughs> but everybody loved it. It was like an Avengers movie that did really well. I think it had, it was funny. Oh, Ragnarok, Thor Ragnarok, something like that. Like that, I think, you know, had a lot more broad appeal, but as far as taking that and then putting it over on the other side, on the Oscar side, uh, the, you know, kind of snooty film critics side, <laughs> there aren't a lot that do that. You know, they're mostly exist in two separate universes. Yeah. I, I thought La La Land had that potential. I really enjoyed it. I'm not a, I'm not a musical fan, but I felt there was a bit of an, there was a bit of animosity built up toward that. I didn't quite understand it. I, I want to, I'm glad to hear that your daughter is still going to the movies and still has that in her, that sort of, yeah not an obligation, but just a desire to be in a crowded group with people and things like that. But I, my, my kids are 10 and 12, and I often have to beg them literally to sit down in the movie room and watch a movie with, with their dad. And, and they love their phones, they love their tablets, and I've certainly done everything I can gently to kind of you know build a love of cinema in them, and I fail miserably. But I almost wonder if it's, it's a cultural issue that the younger generation is not going to connect with film. Is any thoughts Maybe. on that? Maybe this is, you know, you and I are fighting a good fight that's that we can't win. I don't know. Well, for sure that. I mean, you just can't stop what's coming, you know. I've gotten my daughter into because I'm such a movie fanatic and I watch the same movies over and over again. She she knows when like I'm watching Psycho because she knows the music or she knows <laughs> that I'm watching, you know, the, the social network. We have some movies that we watch together that we know every single line of, you know, like um, sideways or the edge or burn after reading some of these movies that she and i both love because they're funny um but i think in general you're with your kids i think that 
what they would probably be into more is going to the movies, you know, like mm-hmm. popcorn and, and fun. And rather than just sitting and watching, I could never get my daughter into movies when she was that age. She had to get much older, you know. Interesting. Now, um, one of the things that, that you've run into kind of like a buzzsaw is, is a variation of either woke or cancel culture. I, I think this might encompass an entire different episode. So I want to maybe yeah, know, just kind right? of break it down, but can you just share, I mean, you're an industry veteran. What, what happened to you over the last couple of years and, and how have you kind of battled back? Well, I mean, I'm, I've always been, cause I've been online since 1994. And so I was on Usenet before there was even a web and I've been writing about movies and I'm, 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 strangely, crazily, uh, detrimentally outspoken online, much more so than I am in person, although I can have that sometimes in person. But, but you know, for the most of the time I've been online, that was rewarded, you know, or ignored. It was mm. never attacked the way it is now. Like, I've never actually felt afraid in my life like I do now. I actually feel scared when I get online now because of the way people are. You know, there's a whole Reddit thread about me that I just saw the other day, what happened to blogger Sasha Stone. And, you know, it doesn't matter how much I write about what happened to me, what I, you know, how things changed for me, how my perspective changed. It doesn't even matter. Like the fact that I'm, they see me as this enemy, you know, an Mm -hmm. enemy of the state, you know, if you will, they, and so they're, they're trying to destroy me. And I, it's, it's hard for me to get in the minds of young people who want to do that to somebody. It's just hard. I heard from an old Uh, film critic today she's a very well respected film critic from a major outlet who had a lot of notoriety back in the 80s and 90s and she just told me that she's been attacked the same way people make fun of her drag out her old reviews and it's it's caused her to go into hiding she's protecting her tweets and you know because she happened to like a movie that they didn't like and that was the spark huh that was the spark for her a disagreement over a film review it was partly that. I mean, I, I really can't. It was partly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I really can't explain what it is except to say it's like 1984 to yeah. me. Like it just feels like that, like this young generation or, you know, maybe it's just the, you know, sort of the fact that you can't talk to another person when you're online and you just sort of see this image that you think that they are. But it weirds me out. And, and honestly, for me, all that happened for me was that, I mean, I got red pilled. I don't think there's any other way to say it, which is just that I, you know, around 2020, I noticed that the, the media was lying, that they were telling a narrative that they wanted to be true and they were gaslighting people. And it bothered me. It was, you know, the Tom Cotton thing at the New York Times was the start of it. And after that, even including to today, I just see them pushing this narrative that isn't true. And, and the American people can see the difference. They know what's true because they can see it with their own eyes, you know? Well, I disagree and, with you there. I think a lot of people can, at least not yet. And I'm hoping not. that is, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that does change. And by the way, your politics are left of center. They remain left of center. So yeah. what you're describing isn't a, oh my gosh, isn't Trump the best? It is, I'm questioning some of the media narratives I see before me. And I certainly question anyone who wants to squash free and fair debate. I mean, those are very different exactly. things. And, and that also, shouldn't be enough for you to be ostracized, but it has been. No, it has been because the idea is it isn't just enough to be long. And this is what I found out, even from friends of mine, close friends of mine, even family. It isn't enough just to agree with them politically. It's also you have to agree to hate and dehumanize the other group. And that was something I refused to do. Yeah. 
because it it just sent a chill through me. I was like, I'm not going to do this. I know it's wrong. It's immoral, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to hate people just because they have different politics from me. You know? Now let's let's stay on a more positive note here. <laughs> you no, know, in in that no, because there's, there's a lot of negativity, and it's understandable. Sorry. You're still here. You've got a Netflix series, which you're a major part of. AwardsDaily.com is still around, still going strong, and you're yeah. and you still have a voice. So is there a message there that, that you can share or, or maybe even advice to those who are either fearful of similar attacks or, or, or maybe folks who are undergoing something similar? Yeah, absolutely. There's a pendulum shift coming, a, a backlash. And, you know, you have to understand that and realize that when it, you go move through it, everything's going to flip around, you know, and, and suddenly what you think is, you know, normal or, or, you know, safe to do by attacking other people or, you know, whatever it is, purity tests, that's all going to be considered wrong, in my opinion, like, in, you know, I don't know how long it's going to take. But I do think that ultimately, you have to have your own sense of morality. And, and that eventually, I have to believe that people will recognize that one day. That's, mm-hmm. that's how I see it. That's yeah. why I'm not going away. I, I figure this is all going to die down sooner or later. Yeah, it's a uh... So far, it seems like it's later, but I, I, I think you're right, and I hope you're right. Uh, one, one last question. You're someone who observes the industry. You see trends. Uh, you're hopeful for the future. Are there any content trends or film trends that you're seeing maybe just bubbling up right now that you can maybe call attention to, or you think that's something we should take note of? Well, I think that, that there are, you know, there are industries that I think are dying and industries I think are exploding, and I think Twitter is dying. I think Facebook is dying. I think YouTube and podcasts are exploding. And I love that there's so much, um, you know, you can't, the, the trying to silence all of these voices on the right is only going to lead to more innovation mm-hmm. and, you know, people finding new ways to communicate to their audiences. And that's really thrilling. I love what Daily Wire is doing, both their own movies and stuff like that. And YouTube, I think if, if anything that I could see ahead right now, I'd see that there's there's an, there are opportunities to make new media that, you know, there weren't in the past that you can just immediately produce them, put them online and give them to an audience. Like, I think that's incredible and exciting. And the more you think about that and move in that direction, the less you have to deal with this, you know, Salem stuff on the other side, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And by the way, as we're recording this, the new trailer for the Daily Wire original shut-in came out today, yeah. and this will be a few days. Well, this will go live a few days later, but... I have to say, no, I'm a, I'm kind of a genre fan, so maybe I'm an outlier, but it's the first movie that I'm extraordinarily excited about. Uh, the return of Vincent Gallo, a very mercurial yeah. actor, is going to be back. I spoke to the film's uh, producer, Jala Saunier, and he just couldn't stop talking about Gallo and his performance. I mean, I love that, where you have the anticipation for something new and fresh, and the trailer is spectacular. It doesn't even give away that much. It teases a lot. Yeah. The musical cues are excellent, so... You know, if this is a a non-traditional Hollywood uh, product, and then, then bring it on, and uh, that is, Absolutely. I agree, that is exciting. And some of my favorite comedic voices now. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't watch Saturday Night Live willingly with a gun to my head. Oh, I'd rather either. watch J.P. Watched... Sears. You know, <laughs> no, me either. No way. Are you kidding? That's not funny. Yeah. Or any yeah. of those dumb late night comedies 
shows, those aren't funny anymore either. They're yeah. like propaganda. It's brutal. It's brutal. But, uh, well, Sashi, thank you so much for sharing your story and your behind the scenes look at the new Netflix docuseries, War. It is available right now. Check it out and you will not be disappointed. If you love movies and, or even if you're just curious about movies or why they matter in the culture, this, this show really does break it down in a beautiful way. And of course, also follow Sasha at awardsdaily.com, a great site updated all the time, as I've noticed. Uh, so good for you and your team. And uh, Sasha, thank you so much for your time oh, and being Christian, brave. I know it sounds you. silly, and but you're you're a brave person. And you you know, reaching out to other people, even when you don't agree with them on things, it's sad to say that's a that's a that's a thing, and that's something to be proud of and something to celebrate in 2021 as we head into 2022. Oh, well, thank you. And I I just want to say that I'm a subscriber to your podcast, and I love it. And um, good luck with that. I hope it goes really well. And uh, hopefully, we'll get to talk again. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Right on Hollywood, part of the Just the News podcasting family. The year's almost over, and it's a really good time to look back on 2021. Hollywoodandtoto.com, my website, had its biggest year ever. My new book is Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. It's coming in January. I spent a lot of the year working on it, editing it, doing all the things you have to do to get a book ready for publication. That's all good. My year also had some emotional ups and downs. My wife finished her chemotherapy treatment in March. She had battling breast cancer, and hopefully things are going well on that front. And it's been wonderful to see her build up her strength again. It's kind of like her old self is back. My boys, who are 10 and 12, are showing signs that those teenage years are coming up sooner than I thought. So there's that. But I have to say, looking back at the year, looking back at my career right now, I'm just enormously grateful that I've been able to kind of shape a career on my own, on my own terms, covering Hollywood the way I want to cover it. I'm really blessed. And people who are listening right now, maybe you've seen my website, maybe you've pre-ordered my book, maybe you've done nothing but just tune in to this episode. I can't thank you enough. And I hope you'll join me again next week for an all-new episode of Right on Hollywood. Thanks for listening to the Right on Hollywood podcast, part of the Just the News Network. We'd love to hear from you about the show. You can email Christian at HollywoodandToto.com. And please don't forget to rate and review us at Apple Podcasts. Five-star reviews make our day. But just speak from the heart. Free speech matters more than ever.